0: Hey, what's up, y'all? Alan Kenny, host of the Blayton Homer's and Home podcast, part of Crimson and Cream Machine and the SB Nation Network of Podcasts. Uh, I'm doing something a little bit different today. I'm rolling solo. Um, I have an article up uh over at Crimson and Cream Machine this week looking at just uh, you know, some big trends in recruiting uh for the Oklahoma Sooners in the past, you know, decade or so, uh ha- with National Signing Day having wrapped up. And uh, you know. I'll link to that, obviously, but I wanted to give everybody kind of a look, you know, maybe go a little bit deeper into some of the stuff that I re- uh, wrote about there. Uh, you know, and obviously, you can read all that information. I've got, uh, you know, charts, tables, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, tried to give kind of a quant look at things. But, uh, you know, I wanted to expand a little bit deeper on, on some of the stuff that I think was has been, you know, kind of going on, that type of thing. So, you know, looking back, the first thing that I wrote about is um, attrition, Now you, you attrition. You know, I mean, this is players leaving OU's program. Obviously, Uh, you know, this could be, uh, you know, a kid who decides he wants to transfer because he's, you know, not happy at school or, you know, not playing, not getting enough playing time. Maybe the grades don't work out. Uh, You know, he could be, he could get some type of, uh, you know, uh, there could be a conduct issue, something like that. So, you know. I kind of break attrition down into two separate buckets, right? There's bad attrition that would be a player who you know gets homesick and leaves, and uh, I, I count that as bad attrition because you don't really know necessarily what that player might have been, uh, you know, going going along the lines. Uh, you know, there's also, again, uh, you know, mentioned, uh, conduct suspensions that would be, for example, looking back, a guy like, uh, Trey Matuire, for example, uh, again, that's not good either. Uh, not just because of what it, uh, brings to, you know, the negative light that it portrays the program in, but also, um, you know the idea that you have a talented player who could contribute who you can no longer uh, have on the roster so that that's also in the, in the bad bucket you know and there's also good attrition and i don't mean this in the sense that um, you know, it's great that this kid is leaving the team or what have you just more like it's kind of it, it's it's normal, it's expected, you know, you see this at programs all around the country when the player, for example, uh, loses his spot on the depth chart, that type of thing and decides to transfer out or leave or give up football because, uh, you know, that type of thing. I should also mention, by the way, that I count injuries as uh, bad attrition. You know, if someone's forced to retire early due to an injury, that would fall, I would put that in the bad category. Um, you know, then, like for example, uh, I, I I contrast all that attrition with someone who I consider to have finished. Right, the so that would be player who goes through three years and leaves early for the NFL. I count that one as a as a finish. I count player who's there for four or five years and you know uses up his eligibility at OU. Uh, I count that as a finish. Also, I count grad transfers also just because they've been there for four years. And, you know, if you're, grad, if you're a grad transfer, chances are that you probably, you know, it kind of maximized where you could be, I think, with OU's program. So, you know, anyway, looking back, you know, I think that Oklahoma kind of hit this malaise kind of in the middle, uh, you know, early part really of the 2010s to kind of middle. And, you know— there are programs, I think, throughout the country that would absolutely kill to have that type of downturn or down or, or swoon that OU had. I mean, you, you're talking about uh, teams that consistently finished, you know, with double-digit wins. Uh, you know, one of those teams uh, finished, you know, I, I, I guess tied for the Big Twelve title. Um, the two the 2013 team won a uh, you know the Sugar Bowl against uh, Alabama. So, I mean, you know, to, to call it a down a downturn is, you know, uh, you know, maybe being a little bit, uh, overdramatic, but you know what I mean? Like those teams just didn't quite measure up and, you know, looking at what happened, I think during that, that tent, that part of the, uh, you know, part of the uh, cycles kind of in the recruiting, you you look back at it and man, I mean, oh, you had a ton of attrition. I mean, a ridiculous amount and it really kind of screwed up how they managed the roster so you know let's go back and let's look at the 2011 class right now this class uh, I'll note by the way I accidentally miscounted one player uh, in the story that I have so this this class actually had 17 players not 18 but the point still kind of stands uh, you know uh, let's see here the 2011 class had a total of 17 players um, Ten of them were on offense, seven on defense. A total of ten out of the seventeen ended up, uh, you know, washing out, so to speak, of the program. They were gone. They they fall in the they fell in the attrition bucket. Now that works out to a total of about sixty percent of the entire class. Now. Uh, that's a lot, right? And let's look back at who some of these players were, right? There's, uh you know, uh, there's there's some guys, you know, Dylan Dismuke, for example, would be one, or, uh, you know, he, he was gone. Max Stevenson is another one. Some of the big issues here, though, too, are are some guys, you know, for example. The Trey Metoyer first signed with OU in this class, 2011, and uh, I think that there was a grades issue, if I remember correctly, and he was forced to go to a fifth year school. So, uh, you know, that falls into the attrition bucket for this particular class. Uh, you know, Brandon Williams, a running back, uh, five star kid, really, really talented. Only made it one year at OU. You know, really didn't contribute much his freshman year, and then uh, left and transferred to Texas A&M. Again, that falls in the uh, bat, you know, in the, in the attrition bucket. So you had a lot of problems here. You know, seven. You've got one recruiting class, and essentially you only got seven players out of it. You know, looking at the defensive side, some of the bigger names here, for example, uh, Marquise Anderson, defensive tackle. He was gone with that after a year. Um, so you know, this is this is kind of where I think things really started to go wrong for OU. Um, so then, because the next season uh attrition really didn't get much better i mean it was i guess somewhat better numbers wise but the class had uh, 25 players in it and 11 washed out so nearly half um and you're looking at again part of the issue here becomes what was going on with how they were managing the roster right so offense in this class they took 18 players and only seven on defense. So start thinking about what your roster starts to look like in that kind of case when there's that kind of imbalance uh, in the roster, right? You've got all these players on the offensive side of the ball, not as many on the defensive side, just in terms of sheer numbers. But, you know, looking back, some of the guys, you know, who were washing out back then in 2012, let's see here, uh, you know, like Courtney Gardner, for example, Juco, wide receiver, who never made it to campus. I think, again, there was a grades issue there. Um, you know, you've got guys like, I believe it was John Michael McGee, who made it to campus for like a couple weeks or a couple days and then quit. Uh, Trey McTwyer, again, you know, he was able to get on the field uh, for one year, but uh, then we all know it didn't uh, turn out particularly well for him down the line with uh, some, you know, kind of uh, nasty uh, legal issues. Just, On down the line, you know, you look down here, and it just these guys just were not panning out, Um, and so that's you know, again, that's nine out of eight. Let's see here, pardon me, eleven out of twenty-five that were washed out of the class, and so at this point, though, again, I mentioned we had you have this imbalance between offense and defense. So think about what that means for your for your defensive uh, roster. You don't have nearly as much room to, uh, you know, kind of let younger guys kind of come along and work their way in the lineup. In a lot of cases, they've got to get on the field earlier. Or, you know, you're basically kind of saddled with guys who um, maybe, you know, normally you wouldn't end up playing, but you kind of have to just because uh, that's the way it goes, you know. So, you know, older, more kind of project-type players, right? So you you, you look up and down the list, and and then it starts, you know, I mean – Attrition from that 2011 and 2012 era, I mean down the line per class, it starts to kind of slow down and moderate. And what I think though is is key though and I brought up is you start getting more kind of what you call the, uh, the good attrition if you know what I mean. Uh, down the line, as opposed to, uh, you know, players who were, you know, maybe having some type of other kind of uh, the bad attrition issues. So, you know, looking like, for example, let's take the 2016 class. Um, This class had a total of 20 players in it, eight washed out um, for an attrition rate of 36%. So, you know, that 36% when you look at it that way isn't that much uh isn't that much lower than like 2012 for example when it was 44 percent. but you know that's it's enough to make a, a, a kind of a difference in terms of who's staying with the program uh you look at some of the guys who uh were gone from 2016 now you have you know bad attrition in the form of uh Parrish Cobb but you know you have some uh Capri Set, for example left uh because he wasn't uh, getting enough playing time um you know you had guys also in this class like for example Mark Jackson uh he just recently announced I believe that he's going to be a graduate transfer this season you know he made it four years at OU he, he, he never quite developed maybe into the player that people were expecting but at the same time I mean he was there he contributed he was you know at worst a scout team guy you know I mean so that's that works you know looking at the other side of the ball you know uh some of the players who washed out would include uh Zach Ferrar, uh John Carlo Valentin you know uh Austin Kendall um uh, Logan Roberson I mean these were players who uh, you know and I'm not trying to slight any of them but just players who naturally you know ended up finding a new home because they weren't they weren't playing enough they weren't able to uh, overcome you know the guys who would who beat them out for spots and you know that's that's not a, a that's a healthy thing I think for any program across the country you know you you hate for the situation you hope that it works out for a kid but at the same time I mean it's it's natural and it's to be expected so that's kind of the situation that OU finds itself in now you're getting a lot more of that I don't feel like there's the same maybe recruiting out of like say desperation where you have to get somebody just to because you know you need you need a body to fill a spot on the scout team or you know that that type of thing so that's all all really good and then I mentioned you know again All that attrition, what I call it a second order effect in terms of think about from the example, the standpoint, for example, wide receiver, right? If OU's going to need at any given time three or four wide receivers on the field, well, think about how what that means for your numbers in terms of how many roster spots you you need to fill out uh, at that position. So, you know. At the same time, when you're bringing in guys who are then, you know, washing out, uh, that, you know, that becomes a problem because you've got to fill those spots on the roster. But at the same time, you don't have the same type of continuity. You don't have you're you're having to take, you know essentially take roster spots away from other positions where maybe things are a little bit more solid to get immediate fill-ins, which becomes a big-time problem. And, you know, I think down the line, really, that's kind of, I think, what what did Jay Norvell in at Oklahoma. You start looking at how many guys, uh, how many receivers came through the program and left or really never – kind of developed into the kinds of players that they maybe should have been. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, ended up doing in Jay Norvell, who was seen as a, a really good recruiter. And, in fact, the, the numbers will tell you, you know, he was. He was bringing in great receivers. Uh, the problem is they either weren't staying in the program or just, you know, didn't do much, ne- really never de- – a few of them developed – that much beyond, you know, what what it was that they came to the program with, if that makes sense. They never really got better after their freshman year, and so I, you know, I think that part of OU's, you know, as much as everyone wants to bang on Mike Stoops, and there's plenty of uh, room for criticism there. I mean, think about that though. You know, when you've got, for example, looking at the 2014 season. Let's look at the numbers here. Okay, for the four-year total as of 2014 in terms of how uh, Oklahoma had recruited players, 53 uh, members of the, of, that, of the previous four recruiting class, that includes 2014, so this would be 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014. 53 players that OU signed during that period were on the offensive side of the ball. And only forty were on defense, right? So there's a huge skew there in terms of which which side of the ball is getting the bigger allocation of your resources and roster spots. So, you know, you know, you in that case, you start getting into a situation when you're not dedicating as many spots to the defense, where you have to, you literally have to count on you know a freshman to come in and get a, and start at a certain position, um, or you have to. Uh, maybe take a, a Juco who you normally wouldn't want to take, but that's who you need because you need somebody, you know, for example, on the defensive line that's, you know, physically old enough, developed enough to play right away as opposed to a young kid who would need extra time to, uh, you know, kind of develop. So I think that that actually plays a, played a bigger part in Oklahoma's defensive slide, I think, throughout uh, the, the course of – um all that, you know, the it's there in the back half I think of the 2010. So, um let's look then also though another really I mean it, if you look at the numbers by the way, starting around 2016, you know, you really started to see those those sides of the both sides of the ball kind of even out some. And in fact, right now Oklahoma's actually spent 6 fewer uh, scholarships in the four year total on offense than on defense. They've signed forty-five offensive players from the period of 2017, 2020, and 51 on defense. Now there I think, you know, obviously you're seeing some defensive attrition um just based on the the change in schemes and also uh you know all the problems OU's had on defense, you know, guys uh that I think kind of getting the getting the message that OUs needs to go is gonna go in a different direction um but again you know it's not so out of whack I mean we're talking in this case about a difference of you know 13 or 14 uh favoring the offense in this case you know or in the old days to about six now which is much closer and about what you'd kind of uh hope for um another really important thing to uh, look at is how we use recruiting on the defensive line now this is one position where you know you can blame it on scheme, you can blame it on what have you, but you know OU went through a pretty significant downturn in terms of how they were landing, you know, what the caliber of defensive linemen they were landing. Right? You look over the history of the program, you know, uh, since going back to 2002. That's kind of the best recruiting data that's that's available. You know, and, and OU was at yearly, kind of on an average. You know they were signing roughly between you know r- right around two blue chip defensive linemen every year, um, and for purposes of this, by the way, since OU's moved to more of a, a three man front, I'm also counting uh, outside linebackers, edge rushers, the the kind of like Eric Striker or uh, Obo or Um, mold out there just for to kind of for sake of keeping things uh, you know consistent over time so anyway looking back at it you know you like I mentioned they were landing roughly two to two and a half maybe two point two and a quarter uh, blue chip defensive linemen every year up until about again going back to it the middle of the 2010s there you start to see a pretty significant drop-off, right? You've got, uh, looking at it, for example, in 2012, OU signed zero blue-chip defensive linemen. 2013, OU signed two. 2014, back down to zero. So let's think about what that means. What? Let's go back and look at some of the players in those classes, right? I mean... You look at it and 2012, I, you know, I think, uh, looks like Nelson. Does that be Chaz Nelson? Was that his name? Michael, uh, Onuoha, those are the only two. Oh, and then Charles Tapper, right? So, again, this is not exactly a, a Robot Road. I mean, Tapper was pretty good, but the others, uh, you know, and I guess we can count Eric Stryker there too. So, Eric Stryker was in the 2012 class. So, to be fair, and then. You know, looking at 2013, again, DJ Ward, there's a blue chipper. Uh, Oboe Kawankro wasn't, you know, he was a three star kid who, you know, if you think about it, really kind of took his time to develop. Uh, you know, Matt Diamond, also another three star guy. Uh, yeah, then you get starting getting to guys like Carrick Huggins, who uh, was gone, you know, never even made it to campus, that type of thing. So, um, and then 2014, that's another one uh, Courtney Garnett, I think he was, uh, not a juco. He was a, he was a, uh, uh, he was a high school recruit, but, you know, three-star kid, um, Dwayne Orso, again, three-star high school kid. And I think those are maybe the only two that, oh, well, no, Devonte Bond, um, he was a juco, uh, three-star. So again, you know, you're not talking about just absolute stud recruits here. You're talking about guys who are, you know, maybe more on the project type or maybe more just this is the caliber of defensive lineman that they could land now after that all of a sudden though you start seeing uh another a, a bigger uptick starting around 2015 right so 2015 OU lands three blue chippers up front uh, 2016 it's two 2017 it's two 2018 it's five 2019 it's four this year is two now you know, total. So what you're looking at right now is OU is essentially gone from landing. You know, fewer than about maybe say, let's say one and a half um, blue chip players per year uh, per four years. You know, uh, in 2014, so that would be the 2000. That would count the 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014 classes, right? So during that during that span, OU averaged one and a half blue chip defensive linemen – uh, recruited per per year at this point OU now landing 3.25 blue chip defensive linemen per year so so what does it mean if you've got you know three and a quarter blue chip defensive linemen coming into your program instead of just one and a half well I mean you know in one season i mean that's just more talented kind of high-end prospects who are competing for time who are in your program in your weight weight uh you know in your strength training program getting ready to contribute now you know i think that this is a you know it's easily the premium position on any college football roster and for Oklahoma, you know, to have gone through kind of that downturn, I mean, you know, there's there's something to be said for how that correlates with how poorly the defense was performing versus what you saw this year. I mean, you know, obviously Oklahoma still had had problems on the defensive end of the uh, defensive side of the ball. Certainly in the backfield, you know, you can still say there are issues there. But I mean, one of the things that really came through for OU this year was to play the defensive line, you know, and there you've got guys like Ronnie Perkins, who's a, you know, blue chip defensive end. You've got uh, Marcus Stripling, you know, freshman who's able to play right away, another, you know, another blue chipper. So, you know, looking back at some of the guys that OU signed in the past couple of seasons, I mean, last year, for example, I mentioned they had, uh, I think, five, Blue chip defensive lineman. I mean, you're talking about Joseph day Marcus Hicks, Marcus Stripling, as I mentioned. Um, you know, David Aguebu. That's the kind of thing that uh, I'm looking at. Though now is just OU's raised the level of player on that side, on that on that particular part of the defense. And you know, there are going to be more uh, scholarships. I think we've seen going to defensive backs now because of all the problems that OU's had there. But you know starting up front that's a good place to be so anyway wherever it is that you uh, get your podcast please make sure to rate review and subscribe uh uh, just to make it easier for everybody to find us and uh we'll check in with you again soon for the blatant homers and podcast i'm alan Kenny. take it easy